illness and pain and trauma and all of those intersections, they just strip you. They just strip you. And people can just be so horrific. But people can be so oh, magnificent and glorious too. And I want to facilitate and create spaces where people can come back together again and experience the kind of connection where they fight for their, their own souls and they feel real again and they feel human again. And they get their power back and then they can give it away. They can keep giving it away. I'm Lexi. And I'm Zach. And you're listening to Proximity, a podcast where we examine the forces that draw us closer and those that push us apart, one story at a time. Today, we are talking with Cindy Randall. When we started up this podcast and considered guests that we wanted to have on, Cindy is someone who kept coming into my mind. Cindy is a poet, a therapist, and a mother who has survived trauma and who now lives with chronic mental and physical illness. I'm a therapist who once lived in a psych hospital. I throw that in there sometimes because it's sort of like an icebreaker. <laughs> that was Cindy. Now, before we chatted, I knew I wanted to talk to her about chronic illness, and I knew that she would be able to talk about a lot of really complex emotions and experiences in a really gorgeous way. But midway through our first conversation, I realized that Cindy's story encompasses so much more than just what it looks like to live with a chronic illness. Actually, it weaves in multiple topics, and if there's any common throughline or message from our discussion, it's to lean in and to listen to one another. And so with that, I invite you to lean in and listen to Cindy tell us about how she arrived at where she is today, living with a chronic condition called POTS. It's hard to say exactly why I have dysautonomia and specifically POTS. My doctors and I kind of agree that it's, again, multifaceted, that many things contributed to it and even to its progression. What I can tell you is that something changed in my body when I was a teenager. I contracted Epstein-Barr virus. That really wore me down. My body became sort of broken down. When I was in middle school and then again when I was in high school. Now, looking back, you know, this was when I, when I was experiencing trauma. And Cindy says that much of the trauma that she was experiencing was sexual in nature. At the time, she didn't necessarily recognize the connection between it and her deterioration in health, but looking back, the relationship between the two is impossible to miss. I've survived a lot of complex trauma in my life that much of it is sexual trauma, and it has shaped my life in ways that are horrific. Um, it's left me disabled in many ways. And for Cindy, in young adulthood, those bodily effects of her trauma took the form of an eating disorder. In my late teens and early 20s, that was a really trying time. I was very, very ill um, with an eating disorder that almost took my life. I was hospitalized for a total of eight months um, and had ongoing trauma, severe trauma. 
um, during that time as well. Now, studies have shown the link between trauma and illness. In his book, The Body Keeps the Score, psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk writes, After trauma, the world is experienced with a different nervous system. The survivor's energy now becomes focused on suppressing inner chaos at the expense of spontaneous involvement in their lives. These attempts to maintain control over unbearable physiological reactions can result in a whole range of physical symptoms, including fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and other autoimmune diseases. This explains why it is critical for trauma treatment to engage the entire organism, body, mind, and brain. This link is all too familiar to Cindy and her own personal journey. I have flashbacks in my body that come up in my body. So I know our bodies hold, hold memory. It's almost as if uh, my trauma damaged my nervous system, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think we can only live so long in a state of fight or flight before our bodies sort of give out, you know. And for Cindy, her body most notably gave out after going through labor and giving birth to her daughter. During the labor and delivery, they began to notice that something was off with my heart. It was just beating way too fast. Um, So they started monitoring my heart from another floor, and they would call when, when my heart was beating too fast. And the phone kept ringing, and it kept ringing, and it kept ringing. And they kept saying to me, you have got to calm down. You have got to breathe. And I would say, I'm, I'm breathing here. I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I'm breathing, and they're giving me oxygen, and they're saying, you need to calm down. And, and I kept saying to the nurse, am I going to die? Am I going to die? And she said, no, you're not going to die. And I realized now that I was, I was um, really experiencing some, some old trauma memory that was getting kicked up. You know, I look back on this and realize that there was a lot more going on at the time, but but that question, am I going to die? Am I going to die? There's a lot more fear in the room than just was happening in the moment is what I'm saying. Needless to say, I did not die. <laughs> we were both okay. But I noticed after uh, we brought Marin home that I, I was not the same. And I really haven't been the same since. I had trouble carrying her, um, standing up with her. Um, I noticed my heart would beat so, so fast. Um, Lots of fatigue, shakiness, trembling, dizziness, nausea, headaches. I started getting frequent migraines. Um, But the trouble is, is I would dismiss all these things as anxiety. And this dismissal, unfortunately, became a pattern for Cindy when she sought medical help and answers. She was tested for a variety of illnesses, including MS, because the doctors found spots on her brain. But no diagnosis fit. Although she had many doctor's visits to find out what was wrong, she kept hearing one thing over and over again. It's all in your head. And all the while, Cindy's symptoms were getting worse and more difficult to live with. Numbness and tingling, trouble walking, dizziness, trouble with my gait, sleeplessness, nausea, trembling, trouble with digestion, trouble seeing. I was dropping things. I couldn't hold on to things. So many. (laughs) There are so many. 
And on top of all of that, Cindy's medical appointments didn't provide her any relief. In fact, they were probably causing her more harm than good. We're talking about painful, invasive testing. We're talking about years of specialists who have no answers. And not only do they have no answers, but they're humiliating visits, they're invalidating visits, they are disempowering visits. They are visits where you walk away feeling hopeless because you go home with no answers and you feel like, what am I going to do? How am I going to keep living? I can't even work. Although Cindy had just received her master's in counseling and was beginning her career as a therapist, her symptoms were making it nearly impossible for her to practice. I remember being in a session with a client and I began to black out. During the session, I actually had to tell the client, I'm getting ready to pass out. I... I wasn't able to lift my arms or my legs. Um, I was wearing a heart monitor at the time and um, my, my heart was beating um, 165 beats per minute and the whole room started going black and it was really scary. And um, I realized, you know, and that was sitting down. I was sitting down counseling. All I was doing was sitting there. And so it really shook me. It really shook me to my core to realize, uh, what's this mean? What is this going to mean for my future? Because I, I love, I love being a therapist. It ended up taking over a decade of so many tests to finally find the answer. After 11 years, Cindy was finally properly diagnosed with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. It is a form of dysautonomia. In simpler terms, it is a neurological disorder with no cure that affects all of the body's involuntary systems and causes it to exhibit the symptoms that Cindy had. And after all that time, it wasn't even the doctors that discovered the answer. It was Cindy Googling and researching herself. Well, the diagnosis was validating in that, okay, great, like, but the diagnosis I came upon myself. I don't know if you've heard the quote, don't confuse your Google search for my medical degree. I totally get that because I'm a therapist. So I worked really hard in school. I understand the concept. But if it weren't for Google, I wouldn't know I have POTS. I did the legwork. I suggested the testing. I did it myself and took the information to the specialists. So the diagnosis was a relief and it was also really devastating because there is no cure for POTS. So it meant my life was, was going to change drastically and it did. The progression of Cindy's POTS has pointed to more central nervous system involvement and more autoimmune issues that are still unfolding and undiagnosed. In the meantime, she works to manage her symptoms and to retrain her autonomic nervous system to work more efficiently by doing things like exercising regularly, eating a specialized high-salt diet, taking medications to manage discomfort and pain, and drinking large amounts of water. But since her diagnosis in 2015, Cindy has had time to look back on those past years and see both the linkage between her trauma and illness and the similarity between her journey and others who have also been diagnosed with POTS. So in 2013, Dysautonomia International did a survey of 700 POTS patients. And what they found, first of all, was that the diagnostic delay for POTS patients 
was five years and 11 months after their onset of symptoms. So what this means was after they started feeling something is wrong, it took five years and 11 months for them to get a diagnosis of POTS. The second thing they found was what I just referenced, was that 59% of patients were told by a doctor that it's all in your head. And the most devastating statistic to me that that I read was that 69% of the POTS patients that they surveyed were diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. What's important to understand is that POTS patients are no more likely to have an anxiety disorder than the general public. So that's a really important thing to understand. So this is also my story, but this is not a new phenomenon, especially for women. While we often will label a woman now with anxiety when we can't figure out what's, quote, wrong with her, um, we used to label her with hysteria. Before that, she had a, quote, wandering womb. That goes back to, to Egypt, that term. Um, these things go back a long way of not believing women, hundreds, thousands of years in medical literature, of women telling their stories of abuse. As a therapist, I think of Sigmund Freud, who had many women patients who disclosed incestuous abuse to him. He at first believed them, and then in the end, he turned his back on them uh, when the theory he was developing was too troublesome to him. In the end, he blamed them for their own victimization and developed a new theory that suited his purposes better and made him more comfortable and didn't implicate him or any other men. And so that's sort of the way it has gone um, historically. Anxiety. That's another way that we sort of dismiss women. We just say, I think it's just all in your head. I think it's all anxiety. It's another way of saying, I think you're hysterical. And then we stop looking, don't we? Out of her experience and her realization that her story and those of so many other women and marginalized people fit into the historical pattern of dismissal and dehumanization, Cindy has developed a new vision for how she sees herself and others and the impact that she wants to leave. There are so many intersections, and I am just made up of so many parts, so many complex parts that are deserving of care and attention. And I think we all are. And when we neglect that, we really miss people. And we dehumanize them. And I've been really dehumanized for years. And I don't like it when other people are dehumanized either. And so my hope in life is that I would create spaces where people can feel human again. More from Cindy on how her journey has changed her and what it has taught her after a short break. Hi guys, it's Zach. Thanks for tuning in to Proximity. If you're enjoying today's episode, 
we invite you to listen to the other episodes we have available. And if you know anyone who might enjoy our show, please spread the word. At this point, the only reason we're making this thing is because we can. So it means a lot to know it's getting out there. And if you have any recommendations for stories or people to talk to, don't hesitate to reach out. Now back to our episode with Cindy. Before the break, Cindy was describing how she realized that her story of misdiagnosis, dismissal, and dehumanization were all too familiar for so many people. And most similarly, with those who also had the same chronic illness that she lives with. She was also expounding on how that realization has shaped her worldview in profound ways. I wanted to press into that topic some more and ask specifically how that and her journey in general have changed her, both personally and professionally. If there is anything good insight that has come for me out of being a survivor of complex trauma and out of being a, I'm going to say, a survivor of our healthcare system is an awareness of the concept of power and privilege. I wish so many of us had, including doctors and providers, particularly doctors and providers, had a better understanding of the concepts of power and privilege when it comes to caring for the vulnerable, particularly the most marginalized among us, the ones who need most care. Because the people who do not hold the power know very well that they do not hold the power. But the people who do hold the power are often blinded to their privilege. They're blinded to their power. And because they can't see their power, they can't see how they harm with it. Or they can't see their capacity to help with it or to empower others with it. They can't see how they could give it away. Even with one single question in their therapy office or in their doctor's office, which would be, what do you think is wrong? That is a way to give power away. What do you think is wrong? I'm listening. Because the truth is, nobody is voiceless. Nobody is voiceless. The problem is only that so many of the most powerful just aren't listening. I keep thinking about when you're sitting in front of a provider, so a doctor in particular, there's an inherent power differential, right? And I think what happens with so many people like me is we go to, especially vulnerable populations who have no choice, they can't choose their provider, right? They can't afford to choose their provider. They're just stuck with whatever provider they get. And some of these visits feel almost abusive because they're not, they're not heard, but they continue to go back, right? Because they need help. So can you see how this almost can mimic an abusive situation? It makes me think of the dynamic in an abusive home growing up where a child is being abused by their parent, but they need their parent to survive, right? Well, there's a similar power differential between doctor and patient because I, I need you to help me. Like I have a physical need that only you can help with. Like I need medication. I need, I'm in pain. I, who else am I supposed to go to? And so I think it's important for, for doctors to really understand that vulnerability and that power differential is so huge. 
I asked Cindy how this has changed her approach to being a therapist. It is such a vulnerable place to be in to need something. So to go to someone who holds more power than you do and to have this great need and, and to need help and to feel vulnerable. And I know what that feels like in my bones. And so when I sit with a client, I can empathize with that, with that feeling. And I'm very tender to it. I also have realized that I will never know a client better than they know themselves. And I've always wanted every doctor I've been to or therapist I've been to, I've wanted them to have that understanding of me. I've wanted them to collaborate with me and share the power in the room because there's such a power differential. And so it's really taught me how to be a better listener, how to trust clients that that's not just like important, that's vital. They're the expert, not me. They're the expert of their story, not me. Are you kidding? Like, I can't ever assume that I know better than they do. But it's also helped me to see how multifaceted we are as people. And I think this is what I'd like the medical community to understand is that we are not just physical bodies. I mean, we're made up of so many parts. And so I think we need to start talking about the intersections of how trauma affects the body. I mean, for many years, doctors would dismiss the diagnosis of fibromyalgia because they thought it was, again, sort of a, quote, hysteria, because it was primarily in women. They thought it, it's really emotional. Well, okay, what if it is? It's manifesting in the body. It's manifesting in the body. So you have to tend to the body, right? We are many parts. One of the neurologists I saw early on, he spent a lot of time with me. I had POTS. He didn't know it, but um, he missed it. But one of the questions he asked me, which is a good question, is have you ever been sexually abused? And I said yes, and it was as if our interview was over because he decided, well, there it is. That's her problem. It's just anxiety. Here's a sleeping pill. And then he sent me on my way. The problem with that is it's bigger than that. We have to start having more integration um, and more cooperation across fields, I think, in the medical field to care for the whole person. One thing I think that we could do better at, and I'm speaking to myself as a therapist, is how can we be advocates too? Because if you're a therapist and you're a doctor, you have some privilege and you have some power. And you're encountering people who do not. You're encountering the vulnerable. And there is a power differential inherent in that relationship, that doctor-patient relationship. So you, like, are you willing to make part of your responsibility some advocacy? Are you willing to open your eyes to ways that you can change the system? What that means for me as a therapist is I have to start by looking at my own racism, for example. 
what's going on right now in the world or what's been going on, right? I have to make sure that I am committed to anti-racism work because um, like Carmen Cool, who's a psychotherapist, says the goal of therapy should never be to help people adjust to oppression. No, no, no. Like I'm there to, to, to tear down the system in some way, the oppressive system. I need to be, even if it starts in myself, right? Because my work has to be greater than just with that one client in the room. What what has that tearing down that oppressive system looked like internally for you? So like you mentioned anti-racism work, but are there any other examples of experiences that your own personal struggle has left you with that led to that kind of internal growth at all? When I became physically disabled and I couldn't stand in a line at the pharmacy because I couldn't or I'd black out, I realized I had a lot of internalized ableism. Like I, I was really ableist in my view of the world. And I also um, didn't realize how, well, how ableist the world was. I mean, and how ableist I was. I remember the first time, because I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user. I have to use a wheelchair sometimes. Um, 25% of POTS patients are are too disabled to even work. Um, right now, I'm one of those. Some days I have good days and I can walk and stand up and walk around and I, I don't look sick. So, But there are other days I can't, I can't go grocery shopping. I have to be in a wheelchair when I do those kinds of things. So the first time I had to do that, I sat in my car and I cried before I went inside because I didn't want to be seen in a wheelchair. And that was some serious, like internalized, you know, ableism I was fighting. But what I realized over the course of time is that we put disabled people last. What this pandemic taught me, the stay-at-home order taught me, (laughs) was how fast-paced the world is, how accessible we could be if we wanted to for the disabled. Everything's been moved to video. Everybody's been struggling so much with their mental health. And I understand that. And I'm, and I'm thinking, this is what life is like for me. Welcome to my pace. <laughs> Everyone's living, not everyone, but the people who are at home now are living at my pace. The world has finally slowed to my pace because um, life isn't that different for me. So, yeah, it really opened my eyes. As someone who has also lived through some traumatic things in my past, I wanted to come back to the cycle that Cindy had mentioned briefly and her story of rationalizing away her pain as normal because of the trauma she had endured and thereby dismissing herself and what she was feeling. I asked her if that's still a struggle and what that looks like these days. My trauma has left me with a lot of shards, a lot of shrapnel. I'm still picking it out of my body. I mean, it's violent. It is a long process, and... I still struggle with suicidal ideation. I have to um, knock that away many days still because I'm very familiar with what it's like to be tortured and what it's like to want to die. And those things don't just go away. I mean, I think when you grow up into a faith like I did in the Christian church, which I'm not really a part of anymore. 
I, I still am a believer, but I, I, I don't go to church. We're often, we're often told stories of overcoming, uh, stories of, quote, victory. But I think we're sometimes told them too soon. I think people are often propped up in front of church bodies before they're ready. And I'm not here to be propped up as an example of someone who made it over the hill. I'm just walking on a path. So I dehumanize myself often. But what I'm committed to is being on the path. I'm committed to wholeness. I'm committed to love and beauty and kindness. And I don't give up. And that's one of the things I really do like about myself. I don't give up. I've really learned something about pain. Pain is an enemy, no, no question. But I have to have an ongoing relationship with my enemy. The kind of relationship we have is really interesting. He's always there. Um, but I'm not going to ever give my enemy credit for anything. Certainly not for making me strong. So it's as if my enemy bears witness to my growth. But it's not the thing that does the teaching. It's the catalyst, nothing more. Um, it's like a bridge to walk over. So I like to look at pain as an opportunity, like a space. Pain cracks you open. I mean splits you right open. Physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain. And the moments when I've been in the deepest pain in my life and just cracked at my core have been some of the moments where something else has been able to get in. Something beautiful, finally. Because I was already open. So I have access to the full spectrum of my humanness. Because when you're that exposed, the nerve is raw. So you don't just feel the pain, you feel the beauty too, you know? I feel like the people who experience the most pain are the people who understand how precious life is. But what I've learned is that pain is my enemy. <laughs> um, it's, it's not my teacher. Something else is the teacher. It's the soul or the God image in me. But I have a relationship with it. And I'm going to keep having a relationship with it. It's part of my life. We're nearing the end of this episode with Cindy. And to close, we wanted to share some of her writing. She says that when your body so often betrays you, when it's hard to be as present as you want to be, she finds herself looking for sacred moments of connection like the one that she describes with her daughter in this essay. This is Choosing Care and Connection by Cindy Randall. I was washing the butter off the pan that grilled our cheese sandwiches. Early afternoon was here already, and when I looked downward at the soap water and caught view of my pajamas, I remembered my exhaustion from a night of poor sleep. Guilt thoughts about the day being half-wasted had tried to creep in. 
but they were pressed thin by my eight-year-old daughter's roaring laughter over the way my pinky finger lifts whenever I eat handheld food. We had squeezed the grapefruit's juice into our spoons over the course of the meal. It satisfied both of us and also ushered in visceral memories of my father feeding me the bitter fruit piece by piece. I stood at the sink thinking on these things and felt Marin's soft presence behind me asking for a hug. She always snuggles in so sweet. I have a headache, she said. Oh, I'm so sorry. Have you tried drinking some water? I will. I'm sure that'll help. I think I'm going to lay down. Okay. I'm glad you take such good care of your body. I hoped to myself that I had taught her this in some way. I also felt the gritty stirring in my own internal battlefield, reminding me how hard and holy an act of self-love can be. I suggested she camp out in her bed with some books. She disappeared for a moment. I was wringing the water out when she re-emerged and moved toward me with another idea. Maybe we should lay down in your bed and read and then take a power nap. I tossed the rag toward the sink's edge and felt a loving surrender happen in me. Yes, maybe we could both take care of our bodies today and be together while we do it. Marin searched her shelves and chose three books to carry in, along with her princess water cup. I grabbed a half-read Maya Angelou. We settled down underneath my mismatched bedding and there was an unspoken between us about how perfect this was feeling. I took a deep breath to absorb all of what it was and turned my head to find her precious face. Marin, do you know how much goodness is in this room right now? I lifted my chin and smiled and closed my heavy eyes. What do you see that is goodness? I asked. What do you hear? Or maybe you feel it. Well, I hear Jack bouncing his basketball and having fun outside. And I hear the birds chirping. It was my turn. I feel the breeze on my skin, I said. It's subtle, but it's fresh. Then we realized together that the window behind Marin's head wasn't open like the one behind mine. She couldn't feel the coolness like I could. She twisted and reached up and up and found the push too difficult. Let me help you. I got it with one strong pull. She buried her neck and head back into the pillow, made a long stroke down the dog's back and continued on. And I love the smell of Happy's awesome breath. She smiled big toward me and waited frozen for my response, completely pleased by her own sarcastic wit. I knew it could appear from the outside view that little was happening just then, yet not a bit of wasted day was being felt in any of the little. We settled inside the covers of our chosen books and into each other too. We connected without words and took a small few minutes to notice the life around us and nurture it within us, between us. I don't know how long we had been there when Marin leaned in and broke the silence. There are no pictures in this book, she whispered. I'll have to use my imagination.
This has been our episode with Cindy Randall. We hope you enjoyed it. You can access Cindy's work and follow along with her via the link in the show notes. Check back next week for a new episode of Proximity. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate if you take the time to go leave Proximity a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps our show get in front of more listeners and it would mean a lot to us. Thanks.